Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally cool. We've got Bibles in front of you. Uh, the Bible's sitting on the chairs in front of you. You will be on page 1,239. If you don't happen to own a Bible, please take that home. It's our gift to you. Read it. Do with it what you want to. If you've got an app, please pull that up. Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verses 14 through 22 today as we continue and wrap up our series through the three 16s of Scripture. Now, the past four weeks, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the three 16s of Scripture um, that correspond to our five core values at Venture Christian Church. These are the core values that we would die on. These are the things that set us apart from our culture. These are the things that we have said we are going to value these above all else at Venture Christian Church. And if you do a little bit of tweaking, you can get them all to line up with the 316 of Scripture or the third chapter and 16th verse of a specific book. For those of you that are new to Venture today, hi, <laughs> welcome. My name is Jake. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here on staff. If you're new, I'm actually new too. So let's get to know this family better. Uh, I can just speak from first personal experience that the last month that my wife and kids and I have been here, we have just felt nothing but welcomed by everybody here. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, we feel like Venture is a very special place and we're excited to continue uh, to grow with you guys. If you're new or you've been here for the past three decades, welcome. We, we know you could have been spending your day anywhere else in the world, but you've decided to spend it here with us, with our family, or online still uh, participating with us today. So thank you for doing that. I want to walk through, if you haven't been with us the past four weeks, just to recap where we've been with our core values. Week one, prayerful dependence on God. We looked at 1 Samuel 3.16, and our value was prayerful dependence on God. And as we looked at Samuel's response to God and his subsequent life after that, we saw something that we value as a church. Week two, Stan discussed the value of genuine hospitality as we walked through Mark 3.16. And Mark 3.16, Jesus calls his disciples in a hospitable way, uh, and they continue that ministry of hospitality throughout the rest of their ministry. Two weeks ago, Stan broke down biblical authority, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a text that a lot of you are probably familiar with already. That scripture is used for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And how we as Venture, we stand on that, the truth of scripture. And then last week we had our friend Danny Schaffner come down from Minneapolis. And he spoke to, about outwardly focused impact, or outward focused impact. And he walked through 1 John 3.16 and showed that how our love for one another ought to extend far beyond the reaches of our church. And today we're going to be covering our final value, continued spiritual growth. Everybody's favorite topic. Oh, man. So you guys know Stan. You know he's an awesome dude. He's a great guy. He leads our church spiritually. He preaches regularly. You think he's a good dude. Let me tell you, it is all a sham. A couple weeks ago, he walks into my office. He's like, hey, how would you like to preach about spiritual growth? Absolutely love it. That's one of the things I'm passionate about. That's one of the things that I was hired here to just help increase the temperature of spiritual growth in our church. Love it. What text do you want me to preach? Revelation. Revelation 3.16. I was like, okay, weird text to preach on for my first sermon, but okay. Start reading it. I was like, Stan, you got me. <laughs> so I walked into his office. I was like, so you're telling me I have to preach on a text to people who live in the, one of the richest counties in the richest country in the most prosperous time that the world has ever seen, and you want me to preach 
about how our wealth and our material possessions can and oftentimes does get in our way. Stan's like, yeah, it's about right. So thank you, Stan. So two things for you today. One, don't ever mess with Stan. Uh, And two, let's pray right now that we have ears to hear. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us. I thank you for who you are and the identity that we all find in you. God, I pray that you will just give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, before we jump straight into the text of Revelation, uh, I want to give you a little bit of context. As Stan was talking about a few weeks ago, we always look at context when we read scripture. We don't ever read a scripture verse. We read a lot of verses so we understand what's going on. And the phrase that they used in Bible college that I really like is context is king. Context is king. So where does this book fall in the Bible? Where does this passage fall in the book? What's going on around the time? We need to understand the context in order to figure out what God was saying to them, which helps us figure out what God is saying to us. So a little historical background about Revelation, and we're going to talk about the aim, the A-I-M, which is the the aim, the author's intended, intended meaning of scripture. And so the author of this book is ultimately Jesus, but he used a human author, John. And John was exiled for his faith to the island of Patmos, which is an island nation, an island just right in the middle of the Mediterranean. So he's exiled. He doesn't have a lot of contact with the outside world, but he can still send letters. And he's writing at the end of the first century, around AD 95. And so we're looking about 70 years after Jesus had walked the earth. The church had continued to spread. The church had continued to be persecuted. And so it was continuing to spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire at this point. And with its spread came increasing levels of persecution. And so John wrote a letter to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He wrote a letter to them. And he wanted to answer the question, is following Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? The answer that he would come to is yes, it is. It is. And he writes this as an encouragement, as a rebuke, as a challenge to the church to continue going strong. It's in that context that we find our passage today. Now the book of Revelation, uh, just to give you a little bit of background. It's been used to do all kinds of things. It's been used to say all kinds of things that it's not trying to communicate. The book of Revelation was written to a very specific audience, like I said, the Turkish churches at the time, in a very specific place. And so it wasn't intended to tell us when Jesus would return. It wasn't intended to tell us who the Antichrist is or what is the mark of the beast. It was intended to encourage that church and hopefully to speak to us today. Now within the context of this letter, there are is a series of seven addresses. Seven addresses to seven churches in Turkey. And these open up the letter. And I want to point out that each of the churches gets their own specific address, which we'll read one of them today. But each of those addresses was also intended to be read by everybody else. So all the other churches would get all of the, all of the addresses to the other churches. And so I say that to say this. The church in Laodicea, which is the church that we're going to be talking about today is the main target, but also the church as a whole. And I would say that you and I are in that. So let's jump into the text to the church in Laodicea. This is what it says, Revelation 3, chapter, four, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I want to press pause there for just a second. I could preach an entire sermon on just this line, but I just want you to know that these are three titles for one person. The amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Three titles, all for one person. That person is Jesus. And so if you have a Bible that highlights the words of Jesus in red, this whole passage should be highlighted in red. So these are words directly from Jesus that he gave to John in a vision. And so Jesus is speaking right here. And what he's saying to the church is not good at first. This is what he says. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Yikes. The ancient city of Heropolis was not too far from Laodicea, and this particular city was known for its hot springs. It was, it was situated on top of a, a series of, of natural hot springs, and people would come from all over the region to bathe in its waters. And they would actually receive healing from that. There were medicinal purposes for the waters. On the flip side, there was another city that was close to Laodicea called Colossae. And you might recognize that name. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae called Colossians. We have that. They had kind of a different perk. Their water was super cold. And so it was refreshing to drink. And then right here in the middle, you have Laodicea. Laodicea did not even have its own water source. It had to pump water from five miles away through a series of aqueducts. And by the time it got to Laodicea, guess what temperature it was? It was room temperature, a.k.a. lukewarm. And so this, this verse has been used to say, oh, we need to be spiritually on fire for Christ. It's also used to be saying maybe by some people, I don't know, you got to be cool for Christ. I don't know. I don't know what that was. But that's not what he's saying at all. That, that illustration would have been foreign to the, the early church. What Jesus is saying is much worse. Jesus is saying, you are useless to me. I wanted a refreshing drink. I wanted a refreshing bath. I wanted something that was useful to me. But you are useless. And not only that, you are useless to me. You make me want to puke. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus' implication is clear here. Jesus wants nothing to do with lukewarm living. Jesus wants nothing to do with lukewarm living, and he goes on to describe the kind of lukewarm living that the Laodicean Christians were getting sucked into. He's quoting the Laodiceans. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I want to draw specific attention to the phrase, do not need a thing. I don't want you to think that Jesus is demonizing wealth in and of itself. Wealth is a neutral thing. It can be used for good or bad. But what Jesus is calling out is an issue made much worse when we have money. He's calling out the Laodiceans for their self-sufficiency, their independence, or their perceived self-sufficiency and their perceived independence because they ultimately are not. By a show of hands, how many of you drove here to church today? Awesome. By another show of hands, how many of you have access to clean drinking water on a regular basis? Awesome. By another show of hands, how many of you ate three meals yesterday? Awesome. How many of you ate four meals? 
Congratulations, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. If those qualities belong to you, you are rich. And if any of those things I mentioned describes you, you need to pay closer attention to what Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church. Because church, there's a good chance he's talking to you and me. You see, the Laodiceans, they felt like they were so self-sufficient that they didn't need Jesus. And based on how Jesus rebukes them and based on the invitation that he gives them later, which we'll read about, it makes me question whether or not the Laodiceans were ever really following Jesus. Or they ever really had a relationship with him. Based on this text, they didn't. And what's scary to me, and what I hope is just a little bit frightening to you, is that the Laodiceans, they thought they were good. But they weren't. They thought that they were in a right relationship with Jesus, but they weren't. And it begs the question, when was the last time you took a good look at your spiritual state? When was the last time you took a good look at your spiritual state? Our lack of physical needs, our wealth, can blind us to our spiritual realities. So when was the last time you had a good look at your spiritual life? And is it possible, just slightly possible, that you may misunderstand where you stand with Jesus right now? It's a sobering reality to face, and it's a question I don't like asking myself because, to be honest with you, when I do ask that, I don't always like the answer that I get. And it's times like these we're tempted to run away when we're not following Jesus how we want to, when we're not taking this apprenticeship to Jesus seriously. We are tempted to run away, but Jesus has an alternative for us, and he describes it right here in your Bibles in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Jesus offers us alternatives to the false securities of this world. The Laodiceans prided themselves on their wealth, and this had infiltrated the church as well. In fact, the Laodiceans were so prideful in their wealth, their city got destroyed by an earthquake decades before. The emperor... The Roman emperor said, hey, I'm going to pay for this to be redone. The Laodiceans said, no. We got it. We don't need a handout from the government. You Laodiceans, you pride yourself on your wealth. Jesus says, I've got something better. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become truly rich. Laodicea prides itself on their clothes. They were famous for this black wool that they would make into black clothes and sell to the well-off people of their city. Jesus says, I've got something better than the black clothes that you wear. I have white clothes for you to wear to cover up your shameful nakedness. Laodicea, you pride yourself on your medical community. You pride yourself on having the best eye doctors and the special salve that you can put on people's eyes and it will heal them. Jesus says, I've got something better. I've got a salve that you can put on your eye so that you will permanently see. Jesus is the source of true riches and true security and everything else. Everything that the Laodiceans and everything that the Laodicean church was valuing was just an imitation of the true riches of Christ. Now this whole section begs the question, why would Jesus rebuke this church? We're not really a rebuking culture. 
Why would Jesus call them out like that? Jesus says this in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Jesus' motivation is not calling them to the curb. His motivation is love. I love you, church. I love you, Laodiceans. Come back to me. Come to me initially. He doesn't want them to feel like they have everything and then miss what truly matters. I can give you a little glimpse into my life. I'd love to tell you about the time that I began dating my wife. We met at a game night uh, at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. There were some mutual friends that were dating. They put together this game night so that friends could meet each other. My wife and I, Zoe, we were randomly assigned as partners for this stupid game. Some of you young people may have played. It's called Balderdash. We were the worst at it. No one should ever play this game, and here's why, because I'm terrible at it. We got dead last place. And so that might have given us some indication as to our compatibility, but it's worked for eight years since then. So, But how I thought about my wife and how we courted and how we dated, I think will give you a little bit of a glimpse into the kind of relationship that Jesus is wanting to pursue with you. A few of the highlights of our first year together so that you know that I'm a weirdo too. Our first date was to a worship service. Don't ever do that. That's weird. And if you don't think that's weird, then you're weird. <laughs> My wife and I had a lot of dates where we would have just random third wheels with us. Not because we felt like we needed a third wheel, but just because we had some lonely friends, which made for some very uncomfortable conversations. And there were a lot of dirty looks that we got when we would go study in the library. Mostly just have a bunch of commentaries sitting on our desk and just cutting up and laughing. That might be why I didn't get good grades. I, I'm a very good student. I got great grades from kindergarten through seminary, except that semester. I was not paying attention in accounting. <laughs> she was all I could think about in that season of my life, all that I wanted to think about. As I'm sitting in econ or as I'm sitting in accounting, I'm not thinking about all these complex things that are happening on the board. I was thinking about the previous night that I had hung out with my girlfriend. When I was bussing tables at Culver's, filling orders and chatting with customers, I wasn't really paying attention to what we were doing there. I was thinking about the next joke that I was going to try to play on my girlfriend. Those rarely worked, by the way. And as I was doing all the homework that had just piled up, I wasn't thinking about the problem sets in front of me. I was thinking about the next encounter that I would have with my then-girlfriend. What would she be wearing? What perfume would she have on? How would she do her hair? What would her smile look like the next time I saw her? I moved off of campus my, after my first year. I lived in a house with a bunch of guys. And I would just sit on the couch at the end of my day. I'd, I'd worked, I'd schooled, I'd done more homework. At the end of the day, just wait on the couch for that knock. This knock that I had been anticipating all day, that I had been waiting for, that I had been thinking about constantly with anticipation. You probably have a relationship like this. There are people in your life who you enjoy so much that you would give up any amount of time, you'd give up any amount of money, you'd give up any promotion, you'd give up any job satisfaction just to spend more time with that person. 
And that's just a glimpse of what Jesus is inviting us into. He says this in Revelation, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus invites us into participation with him. Jesus is not forcing us. Jesus is not guilting us into doing that, though we're good at doing that to each other. Jesus is a God of invitation. He invites us. He is standing at the door of our church, and he is standing at the door of all of our hearts, and he is knocking regularly. He is knocking daily into our lives, and will we respond to him? He's not just there when we're desperate, though he's there. He's not just there when we need to use him as some kind of cosmic vending machine, though he's still there. But he's to be integrated into our lives regularly. This intimate picture over the table is a beautiful one. It's one we might have gotten away from in our culture, but there's something about sitting down at the table, and specifically sitting down at the table with Jesus, the God who made the food that we're eating and talking to him about the world that he created, all with God himself. And we get an invitation. And this image brings me to the final and most important point of my sermon today. Jesus invites us into a, an apprenticeship with him. Jesus invites us into an apprenticeship with him. And that invitation requires a response. And some of you are going to think that I'm saying something heretical, but this response is not just a simple yes. It's not just saying, yes, I agree that Jesus is my Lord. Apprenticeship is so much more than a one-time mental assent to God's divinity. It's an acceptance of an ongoing invitation, and apprenticeship is a lifestyle. To be an apprentice of Jesus, you must answer his knock every single day. I'll say that again. To be an apprentice of Jesus, you must answer his knock every day. This apprenticeship model has been kind of lost in our modern workplace. I know that some of the trades still kind of operate under this system, but I want you to go back to your history class, and maybe your history class was history. <laughs> but I want you to go back to your history class to the Middle Ages, where apprenticeship was the model of employment of the day. And in these apprenticeships, a master, he would need some employees, and so instead of paying them for their labor, he would say, hey, I can't pay you, but I can teach you the trade. And this is the kind of image that we get. They're sitting down and they're working all day long together. And then they're preparing a meal together. And then they're eating together. And the apprentices, they would sleep in the same quarters as the master. So they were doing life together for three to six years normally. Learning not just the hard skills, but learning how to think. Learning how to interact with customers. Learning how to live the life of the trade. This apprenticeship is a lifestyle and it's not simply a checklist. And that's why I believe that this is the model that we need to look to as a church when we think about continued spiritual growth, our core value. Unfortunately, now we, we've got a lot of people in the church with more head knowledge than they know what to do with. Right? We've, we learn and we learn and we learn, but we, have, we don't know what to do with all that. And so sometimes we're clueless as to the importance of actually walking with Jesus. That's the case sometimes. And sometimes we just don't know how to do it. How is it practical for us to incorporate Jesus into our daily lives? 
One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he's the first one who introduced me to this idea of apprenticeship. And I want to invite you to maybe think about jumping into an apprenticeship with Jesus. It's done dividends for me. It's paid a lot of dividends. What does this apprenticeship look like? I like the threefold approach that pastor and author John Mark Comer talks about. He defines the goals of apprenticeship as this. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what Jesus did. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what Jesus did. Now, there are many obstacles to being Jesus' apprentice. And I believe they start with a lack of understanding and perhaps a lack of true belief. And so allow me to shed some light on some of those misunderstandings that we may have before we make the decision to be an apprentice. The first kind of myth that we've bought into as a culture is that Jesus just wants the bare minimum from us. Right? Post-industrial revolution, our default brain has thought, what is the X input that I need to get out Y. What is the minimum amount of X to get the maximum amount of Y? We live in a very uh, return on investment, a big ROI culture. What's the minimum amount that I can pay this employee in order for them to show up and do a good job? What's the minimum amount of maintenance that I can do on my 2007 CRV to get from A to B? What's the minimum amount of sleep that I need to have? in order to function and not tear my kid's head off. But this has bled into our faith. And the question behind the question, I've been asked this question a few times explicitly, but there's usually a question behind the question, and this is it. What is the absolute minimum that I need to do to get to heaven? What is the bare minimum? Do I have to pray? How many times do I have to go to church? Is it 1.5 times like the average American? How many times do I need to forgive somebody? Do I need to actually love my enemies? Do I need to actually be honest on my taxes? Where's the line, Jesus? How much sin can I get away with? Can I just say a prayer of repentance at the end of every night and be good? And keep on living the same old way? What do we do about deathbed confessions? And these are not inherently bad questions. But if I can be so bold, they are the wrong questions. Jesus isn't asking us for the bare minimum. In fact, in the book of Luke, Jesus says that anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus isn't asking for the bare minimum. He's asking for everything. And if I could get on a 20-second soapbox about heaven, heaven is not just some random place that we get to go and experience all the things that we just lust after in our life. It's not like, hey, heaven's going to be a place where I can eat a gallon of ice cream and not gain any weight. Or I can go and just ride my dirt bike all the time. Or there's plenty of golf. That stuff may be there. I have no idea, but I doubt it. Heaven is going to be awesome because Jesus is there. Not because of Jesus' stuff, but because Jesus himself is there. If you don't want to get to know Jesus better now, truthfully, heaven, you would not like it. Because it's awesome, because Jesus is there. A second unbelief that gets in the way is that an apprentice doesn't need to do anything. That we can divorce being an apprentice from the things that an apprentice does. 
And I think I know some of the genesis of this in our church circles. You see, the good news that Jesus brings to us is not only eternal salvation. And there's been kind of a litmus test in a lot of the church circles I run in that every time you talk about the gospel, you have to make sure that you tell people that there's nothing you can do to be saved, to earn your salvation. And absolutely, I believe that that is true. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And I passed the litmus test. But if I can say that that's only part of the gospel, the gospel is calling us not just from a life, but to a new life, and it's a new life that we can experience now. Jesus initiated a kingdom life here and now, and we have access to that. And as apprentices, we are called to act in that new kingdom. I summarized the profound but simple thought of one of my favorite authors and preachers. His name is N.T. Wright. He says this, if Jesus didn't care about how you live today, he had an awful lot to say about it. So this idea that we don't do anything as a result of our faith, Jesus would have had a problem with that. Christian philosopher and author Dallas Willard, who I would encourage all of you to read, he writes that grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. In order to be apprentices of Jesus, it will require a lot of effort. But the good news is that we can have that new life And that life is one where we follow the king, one in apprenticeship to Jesus. The last misconception is that apprenticeship is optional. Or some people might have said, discipleship is optional. I can still be a Christian without being a disciple. That would have been foreign to the early church. The the term Christian and disciple and what we're using right now, apprentice, those are all one in the same. You cannot be a Christian without also being an apprentice. And so think about, do you actually want to be an apprentice? If your Christianity consists only of you showing up to church on Sunday so that you can have good business contacts, if it only consists of you listening to what I say on a Sunday morning or what Stan says on a Sunday morning, church, God has so much more for you than just playing Christian. People say, I believe in God. I'm a Christian, I live in America. That sounds a lot like something that I would hear from the mouths of the people who lived in Laodicea. To be Christian is to be an apprentice. Without it, you cannot be a true follower. And if I can say something bluntly, without apprenticeship, the Jesus you're following is not the true Jesus. It's probably a Jesus that you've made in your own image. That's a scary thought. Apprenticeship is also not the apex of a person's spiritual career. Apprenticeship is not just for the professional pastors. It's not for the Mother Teresas of the world. Apprenticeship is not just for them. It is for all of us. Apprenticeship is present at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of our relationship with God. We never stop apprenticing ourselves to him, and we never stop growing spiritually. Let's get to the practical. What are some practical steps that you should take as a part of maybe you're beginning an apprenticeship to Jesus, maybe you're continuing one, maybe you're refiring it back up? I've got some practical tips for you. This first one is not the most important, but I would say for me personally and for probably 80% of the people that I talk to about their faith, 
This is the biggest barrier to apprenticeship. And you can probably guess it. Time. Clear your schedule. Track where you're spending your time for a week. And honestly, if you're anything like me, that'll come as a shock to you. Didn't realize how much time I was wasting on things that were of lesser value. I believe this is the number one barrier in, the, in America, in Hamilton County, in my own life, in this church, based on a lot of you that I've talked to. Do we want to spend the time? If you don't desire to be an apprentice of Jesus more than you desire to watch another episode of Netflix, you don't really desire to be an apprentice. If you desire to work more hours to possibly get more money, to possibly get that promotion more than you prioritize your apprenticeship to Jesus, you probably don't want to be an apprentice. If you want to play an extra round of golf instead of apprenticing yourself to Jesus, you probably don't want to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, all the things I just mentioned, those are good things. God created us to work. God created us to, be, you know, to experience the pleasures of this world, but not at the expense of our apprenticeship to him. Clear your schedule. Another thing that I would love to encourage you to do, study the life of Jesus in the four Gospels. I would encourage you to read your entire Bible, but really, if you have to focus on what apprenticeship looks like, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was actually the writer of Revelation as well. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus think? How did Jesus treat people? How did he treat insiders? How did he treat outsiders? What did Jesus do? How did he live his life? It's my opinion that it should shock you how Jesus lived his life, especially compared to how we live ours. We might have been desensitized because we might have grown up in church hearing these stories all the time. But if we truly look at what Jesus did, how he operated, how he loved, it should shock us every time we read it. The last overarching thing that I'd like to encourage you to do, engage in spiritual rhythms daily. Engage them regularly. Traditionally, these have been called the spiritual disciplines. It doesn't really matter what you call them. They're habits. These are habits around engaging with Jesus regularly. Talk about prayer almost every week. That's a great thing. Communicate with God. Talk to him through prayer. But if I could encourage you to take another step in that, listen. Listen to God and be patient. Something I've found is I've listened to God myself. The Holy Spirit's timing is rarely on my timing. It's a lot slower. But through that, we learn patience. Study scripture, right? Prayer and scripture. That's what we always talk about. Study scripture, but don't just read your Bible can read your entire Bible in 15 minutes a day if you're a slow reader in a year. Understand the Bible, but memorize it too. That's not something we're challenged to do very often. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of what it says. Get involved in an intentional spiritual community, whether that be a few close friends that you guys are going to be apprentices of Jesus together. I'll make a shameless plug for venture groups. There are a lot of communities, these small communities that we have within this larger community, that people within them are encouraging one another to be better apprentices of Jesus. Join one of those. I'll bullet point these last ones real quick. Fast. Jesus fasted regularly. It's something that we haven't done in our culture. I'd encourage you, fast from food. There's a lot I could say about that, but start there. Give away things you don't need. Simplify your life. Turn off your cell phone and limit your distractions when you are trying to engage with God. Find ways to engage in regular Sabbath rest. 
and please, church, if you are a seasoned apprentice of Jesus, please teach others how to be apprentices of Jesus. If you're a seasoned apprentice, we need you to help apprentice others as we all apprentice Jesus together. To conclude my message today, I'd like to just talk a little bit about my daughter. My daughter Jane is two and a half years old, cute little lady. She's my favorite girl. She loves being snuggled, she loves being kissed, she loves being tickled by me. She's really a physical touch gal. So whenever I can tell that Jane's struggling, I'll pick her up, set her on the floor, and just start tickling. Now I've got to be careful. As a kid, people would pin me down and tickle me, and I hated them. (laughs) So I try to be careful with my daughter. So I'll tickle her for a few seconds and then pull away, giving her the option to say, hey, let's do this more or let's stop. And I'm always the one that ends up stopping the game. Because whenever I pull away, my daughter looks at me. She pulls my face close to her little face, her little chunky face. And she says, one more time, Dada. One more time. Jane delights in the time that we spend together, and she just wants us to be as close as possible, enjoying one another's company, being together. The rhythms mentioned above are just the beginning of a conversation. They're not intended to be a checklist because ultimately God doesn't care about the things you do as much as who you are and the things that you do that come out of who you are. Like a dad with his kid, like me with my daughter, God wants us to delight in him, to want to spend time with him, to miss the times that we are not spending directly with him, to look forward to the time that we get to spend with him every day, to simply be with him. One more time. One more time. One more time, Dad, Dad. So what is the result of this lifelong apprenticeship to Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Being with Jesus even longer. Verses 21 and 22, this is how John concludes this section. The words of Jesus. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, I just thank you for bringing us all here together. Thank you for walking the earth. Thank you for modeling reliance on the Father. Thank you for modeling just the ways that we can engage with you. God, we just thank you for your invitation that you give every single minute for us to enter into a new life, a new kingdom, one in which you are there with us all the time. God, give us ears to hear what your spirit continues to say with us. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.